You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. The UK's first ever hydrogen strategy was released in 2021 and was revised last year as part of the government's commitment to a green industrial revolution. The strategy lays the foundation for how government will work with industry to meet its ambition of 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030, the equivalent of replacing natural gas empowering around 3 million UK homes each year, as well as powering transport and businesses, particularly heavy industry. This has the potential of delivering emission savings equivalent to the carbon captured by 700 million trees. A UK-wide hydrogen economy could be worth £900 million a year and create over 9,000 jobs by 2030, with a potential increase to 100,000 jobs and £13 billion by 2050. In the coming years, hydrogen could play an important role in decarbonising polluting energy-intensive industries like chemical, oil refineries, power and heavy transport like shipping, HGV lorries and trains, helping these sectors to move away from traditional fossil fuels. With the government's analysis suggesting that 20-35% to of the UK's energy consumption by 2050 could be hydrogen-based, this new energy source could be critical to meeting the UK's target of net zero and could help to cut emissions by 78% by 2035. But is this just a flight of fantasy by the UK government or a real opportunity for the UK to lead the way in hydrogen technology and production? To find out more about hydrogen as a fuel source, its application in the aviation industry and what a hydrogen economy might look like, I spoke with engineers Tim Podesta and Stephen Phillips. Tim is a consultant engineer with over 30 years experience in the oil, gas, petrochemical and energy industries focusing on project management, investment analysis and process improvement. Tim's focus is on the net zero agenda and the potential for a hydrogen economy alongside clean electricity. He is actively involved in the IMACES Hydrogen Forum, which has been set up to look at the long-term implications of hydrogen as an alternative fuel. Tim is a fellow of the IMACES and a committee member of the institution's management group. I started by asking Tim about the different ways hydrogen is made. 
Tim, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about what is a really fascinating subject. I appreciate that this is a a very complex process, but for our listeners who are not familiar with the subject, how do you go about making hydrogen for use in either domestic or uh, industrial applications? Well, thank you, Helen, and thank you for the opportunity to come and share some experience and some views about what as you say, is a fascinating and very hot topic at the minute, which is hydrogen. In terms of hydrogen and its potential for use in many, many different applications, you quite rightly ask one of the big questions is, well, how is hydrogen made? I mean, hydrogen is everywhere, but it needs to be separated from its its various components, whether that be uh, hydrocarbon, water, and, and, and even indirectly from the sun, because the sun is primarily made out of hydrogen, but of course, solar power then becomes available as as a source of electricity. So hydrogen, making of hydrogen is not new. It's been around for many, many decades. And the way I like to describe it, there are two main routes to producing hydrogen. And and one is through reforming of, of hydrocarbon, primarily gas, something called steam methane reforming or SMR. Okay. And and that that is quite common in in industrial, particularly refining and petrochemical applications. It's the main source of of hydrogen, which is then used in those processes today and has been used for many years. So that's the first route from gas to steam methane reforming. And the second one is through electrolysis, which simply put is transmitting electricity uh, through water, which then generates hydrogen at uh, one of the electrodes and oxygen at the other electrode. Now, that, there's a bit more to the actual, the actual industrial process by which then the hydrogen is captured and actually there's oxygen available for use as well if that can be used in it as part of the, a value stream as well. And that's been around for many years as well. And Haber-Bosch, uh, is, that's the name of the process for, for making um, ammonia, but that's based on hydrogen produced by electrolysis and that's been around for, for many, many, many decades at scale. And so the electrolysis of electricity and particularly looking to decarbonisation electricity from non-hydrocarbon sources, from solar and wind in particular, that that then becomes one of the main sources of of hydrogen for the future. So two two sources of hydrogen primarily, steam methane reforming and electrolysis of water. And I I remember as a kid, you know, in in physics class doing electrolysis and and seeing those bubbles coming off and and not necessarily understanding it so much as a young person, but but turning that from from an experiment in a classroom to the size and scale that you're talking Mm. about. I mean, that's that's a huge operation, isn't it? And, And a big piece of engineering just in its own right. Yes, and engineering which crosses many disciplines. And you've got the mechanical aspects of rotating machinery and uh, equipment. And then, of clearly, you've got the uh, electrical aspects of, of handling electricity. And, and then, of course, you've got the uh, civil aspects of building the, the facilities, uh, infrastructure, which is then required for, for hydrogen um, and transmission and use. Yeah, absolutely. I was really quite surprised to read that there are different types of hydrogen which are designated by different colours. Can you tell us why that is and, and what the designations mean and why that's so important? So so in hydrogen uh, is everywhere and there are many different sources, ways of making hydrogen. Um, the colours are intended to, to give what I call a marketing spin on the different potential sources. Ah, okay. And th- there is a view uh, which I'm sympathetic to, which is 
the use of colours is helpful, but it can be um, distracting. Because as we look at decarbonisation, what we're the key thing is is hydrogen is hydrogen. Yeah. There is the potentially some different purities of hydrogen, uh, which may be required for different for different applications. But hydrogen is hydrogen. But the key is what what are the different ways that hydrogen can be made? And I, I, as I explained earlier, right. there's the steam methane reforming, which is the one of the most common sources of hydrogen today, which is used in industry, and that has been given the colour grey. Okay. And 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 the reason it's grey is in doing the reforming of methane of gas, and, and and also coal is used in some parts of the world. You're producing CO2, which is in terms of decarbonisation, is not clean. Yes. So so there's something which is emerging, and it's in different uh, geographies, it's part of different regional strategies, is carbon intensity. Or, or the sense of there being low carbon hydrogen or, or, or zero carbon hydrogen. So where you have uh, the steam methane reforming, if you are combining that with capturing of the CO2, and there's some really big schemes being developed, in particularly in the UK, because of the availability of storage for carbon dioxide, yeah. you then effectively are creating hydrogen, which falls into the, the rainbow color of blue. Ah. So you have blue hydrogen, which is where you're reforming methane, you're capturing the carbon and putting it in the ground. So that, that counts as, as a clean hydrogen in terms of carbon intensity. Yeah. Then the third one, which is probably the top of most people's uh, agendas, is where you're making electrolysis-based hydrogen using renewable energy. Yeah. So, well, and, and the main use sources of that are, are solar power, particularly in parts of the world where the sun is, is, is around for, for many hours of the day, and wind, which is actually one of the big opportunities in the UK because parts of the UK are some of the windiest in Europe, if not the world. So electrolysis based on renewables from either solar or wind, um, those being the big, big examples, particularly potential for scale, is called green hydrogen yeah that makes sense <laughs> so so th those are the th there are other colors as well which are um if you you look at some of the research you do google you can see there's a whole rainbow of descriptions but th those are the three main ones which i sometimes refer to but in terms of using the the colors as, as a helpful but not the, the the main thing is that you're we're making either hydrogen from reforming of of, of methane or electrolysis of water from using electricity from renewables. So those are the two main um, sources going forward. So I, I guess it gives people the understanding of where that uh, hydrogen or how that hydrogen has been made and whether yes. or not they want to use that particular type of hydrogen. So it gives, yeah. them, gives them options, I suppose, doesn't it, in terms of how green they want to see themselves? <laughs> yes. And, and, and the way I put it is um, the strategies for, for countries, I mean, the UK strategy is based on, on a mix of both the blue and the green, right. uh, but but it's all the way I describe it. It's based on on it being clean hydrogen with with a low carbon intensity. Okay, that's a good way to describe it. I think that helps to visualise much better how how you interpret the the manufacture of the hydrogen. Yes, yes, and and, and hydrogen is not the answer to everything. I think I think I should put explain that up front. Um, I mean, hydrogen is is a is part of a a long-term decarbonisation solution alongside other sources of, of energy, particularly electricity. So any ap application that hydrogen has, one of my areas of particular interest is the investment case for hydrogen yeah. uh, with an engineer's perspective. Um, and that is, what is the alternative? And any application for hydrogen, one of the clear alternatives is renewable electricity. So hydrogen has a place to play alongside that as an alternative, but also as part of integration of, of systems in the future. Yeah, yeah. 
The institution recently hosted the Hydrogen Economy Conference on the 14th and 15th of March. One of the session chairs and organisers was Dr Thanos Moros. He's been unable to join us today, but you have some thoughts to share with us, Tim, don't you? How did the conference go? It was very successful. Uh, Thanos and I are working together as part of a hydrogen technology working group sponsored by the IMEKI, and we're at the stage of, of engaging and gathering views. And in fact, if any of our listeners today were, are, are interested, please reach out to inquiries at, at IMEKI. We'll add the email address to the show notes. So if anybody is wanting to get in touch to find out more about the Hydrogen Forum or even get involved, uh, you can uh, connect with the institution through that address. In terms of the conference itself, it's now been running for two years and it has proven to be a forum where different researchers and companies discuss their developments and also what is needed to adopt various uses of energy in the future. Now this year, what was a particular highlight, there were a number of new production methods and developments like hydrogen and internal combustion engine. Oh, right. Okay. And these were presented as well. That sounds really interesting that it's gone from just the the production of hydrogen to actually implementation, you know, and and transport and and so on. It sounds like the the industry is growing quite rapidly in that respect and people are now looking for opportunities to use hydrogen rather than just make it. Indeed. Why do you feel it's it's important to have these kind of conferences? You know, what's, what's the value to the engineering community uh, and what benefits does it bring ultimately to the hydrogen market do you think well in a sense what what it has appears to have become is a, as an essential forum for the technical community yeah. to discuss these issues and also requirements for wider hydrogen adaptations going forward now i i mentioned in my introduction the uk government's 2021 hydrogen strategy yes. it, it's quite an ambitious plan to yes. create 10 gigawatts of of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030 yes how well has that plan been received by the engineering community and and how feasible do you think this ambition is well having done some deep analysis of the strategy against what industry is doing and it's a, it, it involves many many different um, industries interest you know from from energy companies to gas transmission companies to oil and gas companies there's definitely a, an appetite and, and business opportunities which are being being developed which could which can meet that 10 gigawatt uh, and with a with a mix of the the types of sources of hydrogen that we've talked about uh, and revolving around industrial clusters in, in the UK so it is, it is feasible and in fact uh, the, the 2022 update of that strategy, with an emphasis of energy security, certainly put more more power behind more more energy behind the uh, the government drive and also industrial uh, response, both engineering community and and the business community to see opportunities to to deliver that 10 gigawatts through through large scale and and, and some potentially small smaller scale schemes as well which um, will contribute but the, the bulk of that will be through the large schemes revolving around the the, the industrial clusters which have been targeted in the UK so I mean from the from the point of view of, of the strategy it's it's going to be more aimed at industry use rather than domestic use then I'm presuming as a, as a start any industry and I remember back to my time uh, uh, working for BP in the gas business, the, the the development was very much based on on being able to scale and having a, a sort of large market to start with, and and at that time it was to supply the power industry uh, as well as the back of that um, serving the domestic market as well. Um, one of the features about hydrogen, it, it has to be um, effectively produced rather than just found in the ground like gas. 
So you, you need to have facilities which will actually produce the hydrogen linked back to either a source of electricity, renewable or, or gas. Yeah. But also it is, it is as a product, it's transportable, but, but much more difficult to transport than gas because of its density and its um, other characteristics. Yeah. And therefore, the natural growth of hydrogen will be, th- will be around centres of, of larger production. Yes. And the obvious place to start is where hydrogen is currently used today, and that is in refineries, uh, in chemical plants, um, potentially in, in fertiliser plant making ammonia. Ammonia is one of the big current uses of hydrogen, is making ammonia around the world using steam methane reforming, but emitting CO2. So, so clearly the opportunity to decarbonize that through hydrogen coming from electrolysis of wind and solar. That seems to be the basis of many, many schemes, some in the UK, but primarily around the world. Um, and, yeah. and, and so it's, it's, it'll start, and it is starting, with large schemes around the industrial clusters replacing existing use of hydrogen, which is not clean, yeah. if I can put it that way. It's hydrogen, which is produced alongside a lot of CO2. So, and then having that as, as, as a hub and cluster, there's then the opportunity to do a number of things like create um, a supply of hydrogen which will support potential use in, in other areas like like transportation, heavy-duty vehicles or aircraft, which is one of the sort of medium-term potential use of hydrogen, uh, and also power. Yeah. Currently, the many countries like the UK use natural gas to cover peak load. And some of the big schemes, uh, some of the schemes in the UK are looking at the possibility of, of having hydrogen to effectively uh, either reduce the use of gas or replace it in those sort of applications and 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 once again those are those are starting around those sort of schemes are based around the industrial hubs uh, like in the northwest of england scheme called hynet which um i commend people to have a look at and maybe learn more about there are schemes in 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 the northeast of england around the humber around teesside so those are three of the big industrialers of the uk and also up in Scotland around, around Grangemouth and, and accessing kind of carbon capture potential in North Sea, but also access to sort of wind power, which will generate a lot of electricity. And some of that could usefully be made into hydrogen. Yeah. So that, that's where things appear to be or actually are starting right now. Those are the schemes which, I mean, as an engineer looking at projects, we're already seeing feed front-end engineering design of facilities happening, uh, consultations and, and planning particularly in areas like Hynet, northwest of England. So there are things happening which engineers are getting involved with. Part linked to what I call existing technology, so infrastructure, but stretching it to be working in an environment with hydrogen, which has you know particular characteristics around material technology, uh, around dealing with, um, just like with gas, you have to take care with it, but dealing with potential for leakage uh, and, and reducing the amount of emissions. So there, there, are, yeah. there, there are definitely um, lots of technical areas which are of, of, of interest. Yes, I was, I was going to, that was going through my mind actually, is moving from natural gas use to hydrogen use will be probably slightly easier in terms of the, the process side of things rather than having to build something new. So being able to swap out an existing process uh, for hydrogen sounds like it's it's a little bit easier to manage in that yes. the yes. the um the chemical engineering side of things if you like is yes. is kind of in place yeah so there are strong similarities in technology around handling of a gas building compressors yeah. obviously has to deal with different gas characteristics uh, but also um, in terms of materials and, and actually the process. The process of steam methane reforming is 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 well tried and tested, although there are clearly some technology stretches in terms of scaling that up. And, th- and then on, on, on 
in terms of the transportation of hydrogen, there is work being done looking at how it might be blended with natural gas for transportation. Okay. Also, how it might be used in, in, in sort of domestic environments as well. Yeah. That, that's a, a very interesting area. Although, once again, what's the alternative? Electricity and, and, and any use for hydrogen, whether it be in industry, whether it be for power, whether it be for um, you know, backup peak power or whether it be for residential use. The alternative is, well, how might that compare or, or be, be mixed with using more electricity in those environments to decarbonise? Yeah. So, I mean, we talked briefly there about about the differences between um, industry and, and, and domestic use. Are we going to see industrial partnerships develop to ensure the strategy can be implemented? Uh, we'll certainly need industrial partnerships and, and partnerships with, with local communities because that's the strategy of, of developing um, hydrogen at scale to decarbonise industrial clusters uh, will trickle down in, in two ways. For those regions and, and counties, for example, the, the Tees Valley area, which is right at the heart of one of these industrial uh, clusters, they will see the opportunity for hydrogen to be used more locally for, for transportation, for heavy goods vehicles, for example, and, but also potentially to be used either blended or, or as replacing some local sort of gas supply for industry, for smaller industry, for whether it's used for, for heating or, or for even residential. There are schemes to trial that around the country. So the opportunity for hydrogen will be sort of grow organically uh, and will trickle down to communities near near to where the uh, th those hydrogen clusters are and some of some of that will be there's talk of some some sort of residential trials around hydrogen using hydrogen to replace gas for certain industries um, like steel where communities are are remote for example i live in in the box area and we're could be further from from any of these schemes and also further from the sea we may see hydrogen peering uh, in terms of supplies for sort of local infrastructure to supply um, transportation and there may well be potential for what i call sort of smaller regional schemes where there's an opportunity to create hydrogen locally for for local use and this is quite apparent in europe that they're pushing this quite hard and they, these are quite small scale schemes um but it's an opportunity for example uh, this, 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 there is another way of producing hydrogen through something called pyrolysis, very high temperature plasma right. conversion of waste to produce hydrogen and, and solid carbon. And there are schemes in other parts of the world where that is being trialed. And that could be if, if uh, supported by sort of partnerships with local community uh, and, and also based on the geography, if there's an opportunity to um, create those sort of schemes, uh, then that way will be something that uh, becomes a part in different parts of um, the UK. I mean, examples, right. some good examples up in Scotland. There's the Orkney scheme where they've they've been they've been a sort of like a test bed for hydrogen in the community. Yeah, partly driven by the fact that their, their, their connection to the electricity grid is is uh, limited. So they've they've almost been forced to try a different route to converting tidal power, wind power into hydrogen for for a variety of yeah. what I call local usage, um, and, and then also. Something like uh, some, some industries, There's like some of the distilleries in Scotland who see the advantage of replacing the use of LPG or, or gas or, or oil to heat their stills to using hydrogen, yeah. which could be generated locally. And that, that then means they can look towards marketing at a net zero drams of whiskey. <laughs> yes, be quite nice. I like the idea of green whiskey. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a great idea. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so, so in terms of trickling down, there may be local schemes and there'll be sort of the, the, um, the opportunity through uh, the potential growth of hydrogen beyond 2030. Um, and that, and that, that, I think, is it's less clear how that's going to go, but certainly it'll start with these clusters. We'll see 
impacts locally to those clusters and will potentially see sort of uh, sort of knock on uh, growth opportunities within uh, areas which are further from those clusters. Yes. And then the, the other thing that may happen in the future still to be clarified is, is, is how hydrogen can become a more national network for hydrogen. And there's some big yeah. questions which are being uh, to be uh, addressed on that. And there are trials going on which are interesting to follow. Yeah, the, building the infrastructure, I think, is is going to be the the critical issue for for most of these kind of technologies that that we want to adopt, and and certainly that's for a country, I suppose, the size of the UK, perhaps not so difficult. But uh, once you start to get to much larger countries with uh, more spread out uh, communities, that becomes quite a, a complex task. So it's, it'd be interesting to see how the engineering community is going to tackle that in the future. Indeed, and and there are. The UK has particular history in terms of gas infrastructure, and that gives, uh, on one hand, that gives a huge advantage to the skills, the technology development, there's um, experience which can look at converting that in part or to be having a sort of national hydrogen transmission network. Uh, So that's an advantage. Disadvantage is, of course, there's all the, uh, the, the, there's legacy. There's there's a lot of gas issues today that needs to be, if it's going to be decarbonized, there are various options to doing that. And once again, with hydrogen, the alternative is, well, electricity, how's that going to play in terms of the future um, decarbonisation of all aspects of energy consumption? Yeah. So you, you've touched on there a little bit how the rest of the world is going to to adopt hydrogen. I mean, we're obviously not the only country that is developing this process. So what's what's going on in the rest of the world how, how are other countries approaching hydrogen production and economies of scale and are they any further forward than the uk and and what if anything can we learn from them well there's a huge amount going on i don't think there, there are many countries in the world that haven't developed or are not developing hydrogen strategy and having looked in in some depth at the uk strategy and how it might play out uh, there are strong comparisons with with what, what's happening in the eu in europe in general. Clearly, we're connected to Europe in terms of some of our energy infrastructure. So there, there is a sort of a uh, an interest in, in um, collaborating. In terms of people, uh, countries being more, more advanced, certainly the opportunity in, in the UK is around, if you look to the offshore wind, there's huge amounts of renewable electricity, which are available now, but, but also in the future, particularly if you look off Scotland, Scotland, and hydrogen can be a part of the uh, solution, a part of the, the mix on how, how that uh, that offshore wind is um, monetized, for want of a better term, because there's the alongside electricity, there's, there's how hydrogen sort of fits into the energy mix. Hydrogen can be could potentially be a, a great way of storing energy, um, as well as being available to provide peaking power to cover the troughs or to cover the, the peaks in generation yeah. and, and offset the, uh, the the troughs around uh, the variability of wind and solar. Batteries will play, play a part as well as part of that. Uh, and then, of course, is the transmission of energy, both from the source to, to the UK consumer, which the, the flow is broadly to north to south, but also the opportunity for export, yeah. export of energy. Uh, and, and this is one of the, the big hope for, for the North Sea, off the north of England and off Scotland, that there a lot of this energy could be exported and exported further distance, either as hydrogen or, as, as we talked earlier, hydrogen being part of other things as well. It could as part of hydrogen derivatives. Yeah. And then there are two main potential derivatives. There's ammonia, which in itself is a valuable product, there's a global market for. Uh, and then also the, the concept of converting, some, some people call them e-fuels uh, in the aircraft industry. It's um, SAFs, sustainable air fuels, where hydrogen, particularly if it's made from a, a renewable source, very clean hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, that can be seen as a fuel 
which is neutral in terms of its its carbon emission, although yeah. um, it is still emitting carbon, but effectively it, it is re- taking CO2 out of the atmosphere to create the fuel. Yeah. That, that's sort of the balancing act. So so in terms of uh, UK situation, it, it has a unique situation uh, and, it, and it probably has potential to lead in that, particularly building on the offshore wind for leadership position it's got today and then leverage that in the future. Compared to other parts of, of Europe, which are very much focused on, on um, developing uh, supply right. and infrastructure. You look at somewhere like Germany, they are very much uh, dependent on importing all their energy and they're looking at working with organisations which can generate energy in the North Sea, whether it be electricity or, or hydrogen to meet its needs. And not dissimilar to the, the so gas developments in the 80s and 90s, the potential for hydrogen to come from somewhere like North Africa, right. where in the past gas has been a major export from reserves in places like Algeria and in particular. There's potential there for places like Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia to be generating hydrogen, which can then be exported in pipelines, which is probably the, the best way of transporting hydrogen and potentially even reusing existing pipelines. Yeah. And that then becomes a major source of effectively clean energy for Europe of the future. So it sounds like there, there are some great opportunities for for developing countries as well as uh, the established um, markets that we use now in terms of oil and gas to be converted yeah. to hydrogen at some point. Uh, it, it sounds like there's, there's some great opportunities worldwide for, for countries to come together yes. to partner, to develop these yeah. uh, these new technologies, which sounds really exciting, certainly from an engineer's point of view anyway. Yes, and then certainly the uh, when, you, when you look at uh, the development of hydrogen renewables, the, the uh, one of the challenges is is achieving the collaboration which will be required in the partnerships, you know, right through from government, local stakeholders, um, through to the organisations which have the capacity to develop the, the engineering contractors and the um, traditionally the oil and gas companies and energy companies who have the uh, the financial muscle as well as the technology muscle to, to develop these big projects, yeah. and then down to you know, connecting that to to actually the market. Um, the, the consumers of hydrogen getting uh, like with gas the whole thing the whole chain needs to join up before it starts the, the you know the chicken egg and egg situation yeah. uh, it all needs to be um, happen at once almost that, that's why the development of industrial clusters where it's on the back of existing hydrogen there being so what I call a, a base demand yeah. that appears to be where, where where things are starting at scale it sounds like we have an interesting future ahead of us when it comes to not only creating hydrogen, but creating the economies of scale to to create a market for it as well. Tim, thank you ever so much for joining me today to talk about this and, and to set the scene, if you like, for, for yes. a future uh, with the hydrogen economy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen is a sustainable aerostructures lead engineer with Spirit Aerosystems and has been actively involved in working with the Aerospace Technology Institute on their Fly Zero project to realise zero carbon emissions commercial aviation by 2030. He is a chartered mechanical engineer and has recently become the chair of the aerospace division at the IMACE. Stephen and I began by discussing the Fly Zero project and what it meant for the aviation industry in the UK. 
Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's it's a really great honour to have you on the show. You've been involved with the Aerospace Technology Institute's Fly Zero project, haven't you, which has set out a revolutionary vision in aviation for a new generation of aircraft powered by liquid hydrogen. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Yes, Alan, I'm glad to be here today. Um, the Fly Zero project gathered 100 experts from around the aviation um, sector, and they came from OEMs like Airbus, uh, suppliers like GKN and Spirit, also some SMEs, academia, some operators such as EasyJet, and also some ground and uh, support uh, crew as well. And what we were trying to do was look at this problem of um, finding a solution or looking at the feasibility of zero carbon emission flight in a holistic manager. So not just looking at the aircraft design itself, but actually looking how you support that aircraft, yeah. how you manage it in service and designing some roadmaps in order to achieve that. Um, so those experts spent about a year uh, trying to learn themselves what hydrogen was all about. <laughs> so we spent the first three months of the project just learning what was hydrogen, how does it react with different materials, what kind of behavior it is, and what way will that affect an actual aircraft? And it affects it in a couple of different ways. And we, what we did was, when, once we understood how would it affect the, the aircraft and what technologies we might need, then we developed the technology roadmaps and technical reports towards the end of the project and used the concepts to highlight some of these technologies. So the concepts that we developed and showcased at the end of Fly Zero are not necessarily a, the finished product, just a template yeah. to hang technology bricks on and to demonstrate the pros and cons of adding these technologies and the benefits of trying to assess them and develop them for potential use on a hydrogen aircraft in the future. Right, okay. So so the whole purpose of the exercise was really to to give the the aviation industry an opportunity to to understand what it will entail if they go down this route of of taking on hydrogen as a as a fuel source. Is that, that does that kind of sum it up? Yes, it, it, exactly. And where the focus their research and technology efforts yeah. for for the the OEMs, SMEs, and and everybody else in the sector. So, for example, cryogenic liquid hydrogen storage. It's not an easy task. Yeah. Um, in the space industry, they've been using hydrogen for quite a while. Yeah. But the application is different because it's a one shot vehicle. Right. So it doesn't need to last very long. Whereas we have aircraft that are in service from 25 years up. Yeah. Um, so you need to have a storage for the hydrogen that will last for the service of the aircraft or at least till major overhaul uh, maintenance intervals. Yeah, that, that leads me on to a, a really good question, actually, in terms of developing these hydrogen-powered aircraft. You, you're going to need a significant amount of new technologies in the area of, as you've just mentioned, fuel storage, distribution, and the propulsion systems themselves. So what kind of technologies are you seeing being developed, or what do you think is going to be around you know, in the next few years as, as this technology develops? Yeah, sure. So we can see some practical and uh, public examples of uh, fuel cell technology being used in flight today. So there's a company called Zero Avia based in the UK that have multiple hydrogen fuel cell aircraft test flights. Yeah. Supported again by the ATI um, and, the, and the British government. And across the water over in um, North America, we have Universal Hydrogen flying a fuel cell aircraft. Um, so the fuel cell technologies will be developed. The constraints around that may be to smaller aircraft 
but the technology could be developed for lar larger civil aircraft in the future. For large civil aircraft, we have the likes of Rolls-Royce, who recently did a, a, a hydrogen engine test and are developing liquid hydrogen gas turbines in the UK for civil aircraft. Uh, and across the water over in uh, France, we have Safran and CMFF developing said uh, turbine technology for the, the hydrogen aircraft as well. There are multiple organisations all kind of doing lots and lots of different research. When might we see a commercial aircraft? You, you said there that the small scale aircraft it would probably be developed for first and then the scaling up, I suppose, becomes the difficult part. Do, do you think, you know, we're a long way off from from having 747s powered by hydrogen or is this something that we're going to see within the next 5, 10, 15 years? Well, the reality is the industry committed to a net zero for 2050. Right. And if we really want to achieve that target, we're going to have to have zero carbon emission aircraft in the air by 2035. Okay. Now, whether that happens uh, is a matter of debate and a matter for how hard people push the technology, what support they get from governmental agencies and also from private investment as well to make that a reality. Yeah. We can see Airbus have launched the Zero E program, looking at the whole aircraft, both propulsion and the, the airframe itself to develop that as a future product. We have the, as I said, the Zero Avias and smaller startups looking at regional aircraft as well. So... The 2030s is definitely a target for the industry and one that could be achieved with the right amount of funding, the right amount of talent and the right amount of effort put into developing these technologies. Yeah, and you make a good point there about the right amount of talent. You know, this is a very new area of, of engineering. We we know the principles, of course, as you mentioned, that the, um, the space industry has been doing this for a while. But bringing engineers into this field, I'm guessing is going to be, and, and is probably quite tricky at the moment. Do, do you think that this is a great opportunity for, for engineers either to transition from other areas of, of propulsion into hydrogen or, or young engineers coming through an opportunity to get them involved? Yes, definitely. It's a, it's a expanding sector that will definitely last into the future. And I think young engineers can take a benefit of looking at different courses and studies and looking at uh, different research projects that are out there to give a, them a bit of an, an understanding and an interest in that subject area. But even engineers in mid and late career, it's an opportunity then for, to switch their disciplines. I know quite a few of my contemporaries in Fly Zero who had a, a structural or a uh, an aerodynamics background have gone into fuel systems with an Airbus mm. because of their had the ambition and the interest to pursue that technology. One question really that comes to mind is uh, as an engineer working to apply hydrogen to an already well-established aircraft market, what kind of design challenges and, and manufacturing issues are you facing in terms of incorporating this, this kind of technology? And do you think there's, there's an opportunity for retrofitting existing aircraft or are we going to see something completely new in the future? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I can start with a very base level is material knowledge. Um, so at the minute, we don't have a great amount of knowledge about how materials behave with hydrogen over the long term. Yeah. As I mentioned, the space sector has material knowledge that used stainless steel and aluminium alloys for one-shot structures, but we don't have the material data for materials lasting 25 plus years in contact with hydrogen. We also have the consideration of um, if hydrogen could, would leak out of the container, 
in any possible scenario, in, in any instance over a long period, it'll come into contact with some carbon fiber materials. We've no data that we can use adequately for designs on hydrogen aircraft um, with confidence. And that material database needs to be worked up and developed in order to design aircraft. Yeah. One of the big challenges as well with hydrogen aircraft is where we store the fuel. So for hydrogen, it's, it's quite tricky. It's difficult to next to impossible to store it within the wing because you need to store hydrogen at a super cool temperature mm. and sometimes under pressure loads. So it lends itself to being stored in a foam or vacuum insulated pressurized tank. Right. And that would mean that you might move the, where the fuel is traditionally placed in an aircraft in the wing box where it's n- nicely fit into the center gravity of the, the aircraft and doesn't cause any imbalances to maybe the tail of the aircraft where you have a huge mass there and then you have to balance the aircraft to accommodate that. You mentioned before as well the, the cryogenic process and keeping this fuel at the right temperatures and pressures. How are engineers looking to overcome that? Because that must be quite quite a, a difficult process to to get right. Um, so you're probably aware that like space is at a premium and so is weight on an aircraft. So we did look at active cooling systems on the aircraft, but they would add increased weight and require more power yeah. and you would burn more hydrogen to use them. Yeah. Um, so most of the uh, thermal management around the tanks is passive technology or or uh, vacuum uh, insulation. But also you need to understand how the cooling would affect the surrounding structure for any escaped gas that may come out. It may not be at the minus 253 degrees of liquid, but it will still be significantly cooler than the ambient temperature of the aircraft. And that may cause some thermal stresses around the the aircraft structure that need to be uh, designed for or protected against. One question that is coming to mind here is I'm aware that the government have recently brought out uh, and done a consultation with industry about introducing certification by 2025. This is fairly close. That's fairly on the doorstep. How important is it to have quality standards for hydrogen and particularly in in the area that you're working in in aviation quality standards have to be very high for aircraft so are you are you having to kind of create standards as you go with this new technology or are there things in place that you can use to ensure the quality of the technologies that you're developing? So we, we have looked at previous standards for different industries to see what we could learn from them. But the vast majority of standards for aircraft, because the application is qu- so different, require new standards and new regulations. So it's important that whether it's a simple tension test in cryogenic conditions, yeah. how we grip the, the you know the sample, how do how do we cycle at the right rate so we don't introduce any errors of the, the results, uh, right the way through to the actual aircraft's uh, regulation of how we do leaks and ventilation within the aircraft, what happens in in fire instances or, or crash scenarios, and how do we design against that to ensure that we don't end up with a catastrophic failure on the aircraft? Yeah. Do you think it's going to frighten people a little bit? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, as engineers, we have to talk about the ethics uh, of the things that we do, don't we? Quite often, and to tell people they're getting on a hydrogen-powered aircraft. Do you think there's going to we're going to need to do some work to kind of make people feel comfortable with that as a as a power source, particularly in in aeroplanes? Yeah, there, there's definitely a public perception piece that needs to be done, and a lot of it is just the understanding of you know what is hydrogen, how it behaves. Yeah. 
I mean, if you ask the majority of people today where the fuel were stored in an aircraft, a lot of them wouldn't be able to tell you that it was underneath their seats. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they think um, it's in the tank is, at the back. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's explaining about, you know, what are the risks with this fuel? And there are risks similar to kerosene or any other kind of propulsion source. But how you manage those risks and how you make it safe is the important thing. And if you can explain to the public how we're making sure that these aircraft are safe to fly, as we do with all the aircraft today, and ensure that there is no chance or the very minimal possibility of a failure, and even in a failure, that you can safely evacuate people, yeah. you can safely manage the situation as to cause no harm or injury to the people on board. Yeah. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to being able to take a flight knowing that I'm not contributing to climate change and to global warming. So I'm very excited to see what comes out of this process and hopefully in the next few years be flying on a hydrogen powered aeroplane. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. and Thank you for sharing your experiences in this particular field. No problem. Thank you, Helen. all for our usual monthly episode but we have a special plan for you at the end of this month focusing on artificial intelligence and machine learning where we will be finding out about the explosion in AI research what impact it will have on the world of engineering and how the institution itself is adopting AI-based solutions as part of its digital transformation you've been listening to impulse to innovation the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imache.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes. 